Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is book-related programming. This is that upon which you have placed your attention. My name is Brad Listy. I'm here with you in Los Angeles. Uh, actually, you're probably not here with me in Los Angeles. I don't know where you are, but uh, I'm here, and I'm talking into a microphone. Uh, and just moments ago, I was having a debate with myself, a silent debate, a moment of pause involving, uh, my writing, my lack of writing, my, uh, paralysis when it comes to book length projects in particular. And, uh, the crux of it is that I have a manuscript of a novel done, which many of you know, and I need to revise it. And I haven't gotten that finished yet. 
I've been busy. I've had other side projects come up, uh, other responsibilities and demands. And uh, I seem to be uniquely gifted at finding new and uh, interesting ways to become distracted and so on. But uh, I guess my question is, what does it mean if you write an entire novel, a significant draft of a novel, and then you have almost zero interest in revisiting it? (laughs) Ever. That's where I'm at with it right now. I used to be excited about it. I've talked about it. And uh, now uh, I don't even want to look at it. I think of it and I say to myself, it's so dumb. (laughs) This thing, you know, I spent years of my life working on it. Why did I do that? I don't like it. I don't like it. It, like it doesn't feel real or something. It's just some story. I don't see the point. I don't know. I have the wrong attitude. That's clear. I don't know what it is. I don't know how to fix my brain when it comes to this stuff. Uh, for me personally, sometimes I'll tell myself that I'm in the midst uh, of some sort of uh, creative evolution. And, you know, it sounds. I feel like it sounds uh, horrible to talk in those terms. I have this recurring thought, and I've been having it for years, that I I just need to find my thing. I need to find, uh, oh God, not my voice, maybe my voice. I need to find my thing in books. And in having this conversation or, you know, telling myself this, I'm not sure if I'm deluding myself. It's possible that I am, but the fact remains that I have this feeling, this sense that there's a form out there that's right for me personally from a creative standpoint and I haven't gotten there yet from a literary standpoint and my gut tells me that it's likely to be nonfiction, and it's possible that it could be literary collage of some sort and it might even include a multimedia dimension I don't know And then uh, the other rule that I seem to have imposed upon myself is that whatever I write has to be funny. It has to be darkly funny. It has to make people laugh while wincing, as I like to say. And that's a rule that I've given to myself. And uh, this is what started the aforementioned internal debate. You know, just before I sat down here at the microphone, uh, I was thumbing through uh, one of my favorite books which is uh, Into the Wild by John Krakauer. I love that book. I've read it several times, and uh, I, I, always, I always enjoy it. I find it emotional. Uh, I, f- I find myself relating hugely to Chris McCandless, the, the book's protagonist. And there's something about him that just really resonates with me. You know, There's something heroic about him, his idealism. There's something tragic about him, too, but I, I find him to be heroic more than tragic, which I think is the debate that the book tends to stir. You either fall on one side or the other, but I find him heroic. Uh, and I think of him as like an extreme version of my most idealistic self, especially as a young man. And it probably doesn't hurt that we're, uh, you know, we were pretty much the exact same age. I think he was like maybe a year ahead of me, but I, you know, I read this book and he seems like me times a hundred. 
Like Chris McCandless is me if I would have actually been hardcore. I was only partially hardcore. Fractionally hardcore. Like I, I had only a fraction of his intensity. Which is probably obvious. And then uh, the point, I guess, is that you know, Into the Wild is a humorless book. There's no humor in it. It's an utterly humorless book about a young man who dies alone in a school bus. <laughs> but uh, it's a great book, in my opinion. I love it. It's a book that I wish I would have written, which is uh, something I can say about just about any book that I really love. So the point is that maybe this rule that I have for myself, that my literary output needs to be funny, maybe this is an, unne- you know, an unnecessary restriction uh, or even a hindrance creatively. And then there's also a part of me that maybe wishes I could find a story like that to tell. A real story, not a made-up story. Or if I'm working in the mode of literary collage, perhaps it would be multiple stories strung together and thematically related or something like that. I don't know. I just don't know what story I want to tell or how I want to tell it. (laughs) That's the only problem I have. Other than that, uh, I'm perfect. I've got it all figured out. And uh, I do know that I'm drawn to people who live in a really idealistic manner. I'm interested in that. I'm interested in people who pursue that and who live these unorthodox lives on the periphery. And not necessarily to tragic ends. I'm interested in the odd. I'm interested in uh, odd crime. I'm interested in human beings who are incredibly skilled at acquiring power. I'm interested in political corruption. I'm interested in strange behavior and obsessions. So, uh, like for instance, there's this news story recently out of Baltimore... Uh, Did you guys see this? 13 female prison officers in Baltimore uh, have been charged with collusion. They were colluding with gang members in prison. This this gang called the Black Gorilla Family. (laughs) It's an unfortunate gang name. But uh, these female prison guards were apparently smuggling phones and pills and other items into the jail for the prisoners and helping them to run uh, a criminal operation both inside and outside the prison. And four of them, four of these females, became pregnant after having relations with the gang leader. So this gang leader in prison impregnated four female prison guards. And uh, on top of it, uh, two of the women had the guy's name tattooed on their bodies. One of them had a neck tattoo. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure somebody's already writing about this. It's a, the book deal's probably already been done. But this is, the, the point is that this is the sort of thing that interests me. Like, who are these people? Who are these women? Uh, but moreover, who is this gang leader? Must be one charismatic guy. I hope Errol Morris makes a film about it. I feel like this is an Errol Morris film like waiting to happen. And uh, I want to be the literary Errol Morris. How do I do that? 
Can somebody help me? My guest today is uh, Ken Bauman. He is an actor, he is a publisher, and he is a writer. He's a hyphenate. Uh, many of you may know him from the hit television show The Secret Life of the American Teenager. Uh, Ken also runs an independent press called Sator Press, and his first novel, Solip, is now available from Tyrant Books. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, the multi-talented Ken Bauman. And also, the byways of Los Angeles, like the arteries, are constantly packed full of dead bodies on display on the highways. Yeah. Like, you're, you'll be driving, and you're like, well, there's a, there's a fucking dead person. Yeah. there And there's another dead Oh, there are actually three dead people in this little 10-minute section of my life. Right. And you just, you're and, just and driving and past. And thousands of people are seeing it. It's, like, on display. And, and, yeah, and you can't avoid it. Well, no, it's like, the you know, how many people? Three and a half million? I think in the greater Los Angeles area, it's cra- it's like something like eight million people in in the wide like outside of LA County. If you take into Orange County and all that, oh, yeah. it's like seven or eight million people, which Jeez. is just nuts. I think it's the second largest uh, metropolitan area next to Tokyo. Okay, well, shit. Look at that. How long you been here for? Um, since I was fifteen, fourteen, on and off, um, and full you know full bore. 16 17 okay so this is home now yeah this is definitely home uh, right. my home was never home you know i never felt like where i grew up was was it anyway where so. did you grow up abilene okay where no, i grew me. up okay here's the here's the i'll, I'll take you back you yeah know, i'm doing the scooby-doo fingers <laughs> um potosi texas is the town i grew up in population of maybe like 11 or 1200 people i grew up on a ranch Um, my mom rescued and raised and bred and showed horses miniature horses all right for uh miniature horses horses. like how we had we had had normal horses normal that's probably unfair what does a miniature horse look like they're just small they're very just very small horses like the size of a dog i mean what yeah like a large dog like larger than a large dog they're great dane size okay not necessarily great dane height but just sort of dimensionally they are equivalent to a great dane interesting um and they're horses man and and they're very nice uh (laughs) or they, they can also be huge assholes um but for a period of time, for like a, a year and a half, we had the world's smallest stallion, and then a dwarf miniature stallion. Which a dwarf is sort of like the you know the genetic anomaly, whereas miniature horses are sort of a healthy, uh, successful little like uh, sideshow, you know, genetically. But dwarf miniature is like you know double negative. It's just sort of like how in the hell did this happen? But that ended up supplanting. Uh, our stallion as the smallest horse in the world. Well, you know, my dog, Walter, you know, mm-hmm. the, the French bulldog breed, they are dwarves. Oh, really? They were bred, like they were, or at least that's the way they originated. They, were, they weren't brought down? Or were they like an anomaly and then they were just like, oh, they let's were, just keep making more anomalies. I think they were the fun. anomaly of the English bulldog strain. They had the, okay. the pointy ears that yeah. were straight up and then they had, they were small. Okay. So he's essentially, I have a dwarf dog. There you go. <laughs> so you can relate. Yes. Um, so Texas, mm-hmm. raising horses, living mm-hmm. on a ranch. Like, did you grow up riding horses? And... I did. Yeah, I, I rode horses. I showed them. I. What does showing a horse mean? Uh, showing a miniature horse is just sad. No, it's actually not that sad. It, it is ridiculous, though, because uh, especially when children are showing miniature horses, because they're often as tall as the horse, and they're just sort of like parading around. It's like showing a dog. You know, it's like Westminster, but with horses. You walk it around judges inspect it they do a little trot you know they do a jump right. there are like there are um 
I forget the term, but there are competitive shows, you know, where horses are doing like crazy stuff. That wasn't our kind of shows, you know. We 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 did the the like luxury beauty edition, you know, right. the the runway of miniature right. horses. So. <laughs> it's based just pure DNA, pure yeah. DNA. Yeah. No, oh, no tricks. No, no tricks whatsoever. I mean, raising them to have like good posture and putting good shoes on them and stuff so they don't uh, look, you know, jankety and like crab leggy is a thing. But uh, but that's not that hard. I ultimately, it's not that difficult. But yeah, selective breeding and like pairing horses and convincing horses to fall in love and then fuck is an art form. <laughs> it really is. You like, it's, it's a, it is a chess game, man. You, you put them at first at a distance then you work them closer. You even set like a little horse jealousy traps by like, you know, making other horses come in the picture and sort of throw off the big hormonal chemistry and the ether. And then finally you bring them together. And then sometimes if you're really serious and someone is paying you to do this, which people paid my mother to, you have to mount, you have to pick up a miniature horse <laughs> and put it, forcibly put it on. And once they get going, they're fine. Right. We're not talking horse rape here. <laughs> Uh, but once they get going, they're fine. But you just sometimes have to really, you know, help them out, really do the facilitating. So you just grew up watching horse fucking. Fuck, all the time. <laughs> and ho- lots of horse birthing. I-, I helped birth horses, which means, like, I I think probably had my hand in horse nethers <laughs> a few times. From a very young age. From a very young age. <laughs> okay, so let me ask you this. Yeah, because... let's move past that. No, time, no, right? but I, <laughs> I, have a, I have a follow-up because I think this is a, a curiosity okay. to me. Yeah. When you grow up around animals, uh, speaking of animals, there my, my dog barking. Um, but when you grow up, you know, working with horses mm-hmm. uh, in a farm-like environment, uh, do you find yourself less or more sensitive to it, like the animal's plight? Like you know, yeah. You, are you, in other words, does it breed empathy in you? Does it breed empathy, or are you more, are you more like? Whatever, they're, they're work animals. Like. No, I mean, you know, I think it depends ultimately. If you're a kid, it depends on how your parents treat the animals. But my mom and dad uh, are the biggest suckers in the world and, and some of the most compassionate people I know. So, no, the horses were like Ken. You know what I mean? It, they were Ken. They were like family. We had, we had horses living in our house, miniature horses with diapers, like baby horses, living in our house and we were nursing them when we had to, you know, when they're like kind of runts of the litter. So this was like Dr. Doolittle. And, and I still, to this day, when I read like, you know, scientists discover that blank animal has this or that. I'm like, you dumb motherfucker. Of course, spend 15 minutes right. with an animal. Right. And you realize, oh, yeah, they of have course feelings. they have language and feelings and yeah. Oh, yeah. and can feel pain and uh, no shit. Sherlock. Right. Right. Um, so yes, I think it absolutely helped breed, uh, empathy and well, at the very least, it allowed me to practice all of the empathetic stuff, taking care of things. You know, I think it's good for a kid to have a pet. I I agree totally. I mean, we had we had everything too. We had raccoons and goats and cattle at one point. You had raccoons? We sh- yeah, we had raccoons that lived in the house with our dogs. Are you shitting? Yeah, me? yeah. We re, re, re like rehabilitated a couple of raccoons who had been injured. Okay, and we just sort of nursed them back to health, and they were wonderful, man. They they were such good pets really yep because they can be mean little bastards yeah of course well i i I mean you know they can get that sort of like hissy cat freak out thing and they do have they can do damage because they're strong they've got like haunches you know yeah um (laughs) raccoons with haunches um and but they're little I, i can i will remember this sensation until the day i die 
they hold your hands like like monkeys do, and they have similar. They have a similar. Yeah, they have skin. little fingers, they have, and and it's it feels really similar too. Like I've had a monkey because in Texas you can basically buy any wild animal. It's like in certain places, you know, you 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 can go and buy like oh I'll buy an ostrich or I'll buy a baby orangutan. We almost bought a baby orangutan. Like we were the family was considering it. You know, <laughs> like should we bring this this baby into our life? Oh my god! But it's same hands, similar hands as raccoons. So it was they were great. I miss wow. them. Yeah. yeah well, okay. So only child? Um, no. I have an older brother, an older cousin who we call sister because she lived with us in her teen years. Okay. And a younger sister that uh, was adopted from Siberia when she was one. Oh, we Jesus. Yeah. Okay. So, so kind of a big, big family all around. Big family, ranch family. <laughs> ranch, ranch family. Happy family. Happy childhood. Happy, happy. Oh, incredibly happy childhood. Okay. And oh, and then the, the other thing, my dad is a, a mechanic and he was working basically at the house. The shop was, you know, 10 feet away from our house. And that only changed when I was, you know, maybe... 14, 15 or something. And then he got a larger shop down the street because um, his business was doing well. But yeah, it was like, um, you know, pretty leave it to be the beaver. There were, there were our um, sort of neurotic like twitches, you know, my dad is, uh, you remember a Christmas story? Yeah. You remember like the, the, the mythos about the dad being able to curse, like, you know, raise cursing to a vaunted art form. Right. That's my dad. Yeah. I mean, it would, he would come in the door and those, you know, cocksucking motherfucking pieces of shit, I'm going to fucking kill all blah, blah, blah. Ang- so angry, viscerally angry at customers or a car that just like, you know, like he fell or a wrench hit him in the face or whatever. Right. He'd come in bleeding and cut and cursing. But as soon as he turned to a family member, he was like the biggest softie in the world. He just has he has so much anger for the outside world that disappears almost immediately when you put him around children or women or babies or animals. Do you know that I can I mean I'm I have something similar when it comes to being in the car and someone does something stupid. Oh, do you go nuts? I'm trying not to. It's and it's never loud. It's more just like it's like it's yeah, it's <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the but murderous like esque But rage. it's and it, but it's like what it is though is that it is uh I I joke with my wife I call it dark poetry. Cuz there's something poetic about <laughs> yeah, it. It's the like, stringing okay, together. Up, yeah. yeah, but it's not healthy. I, I want to hear that. You can't. I can't replicate. You, oh, it. you can't. It only comes out like yeah. it it comes from your animus. Like well, it just it just yeah. like it's something that happens in the moment, but I'm trying very hard uh, to be better about it because I've come to the conclusion that it's not healthy for me. Why do you say that? Um, I think there are more elegant ways to take care of one's anger. <laughs> but, you know, it's – And it's I have not... a kid in the backseat. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know? But you know what? Hey, I, I think that – I mean I am a bit of a freak, but I grew up fine in – you know, surrounded in a constant thundercloud of profanity. Yeah. But I also grew up in a house where it's like, you know, I wanted to watch – uh, Terminator 2 with my dad when I was five. Sure. Come, yeah. Like, come on. I could watch anything. All, yeah. No art or entertainment was off limits. I was treated like an adult from a very young age. Or, you know, given given a, a huge, broad swath of respect that I'm sure I didn't deserve. Were all the kids in your family treated that way? Yes. Um, but I was all... I would say that I was the most functional in my, in my childhood that I can remember. I... Up until about five, I was a little asshole and would, like, headbutt people that picked me up, and I wanted to be a bull rider, and I, I actually did sit on a bull and all, you know, that, like, the I was just rowdy, a rowdy little kid. Then I became, I don't know what happened, but I switched and became ultimate teacher's pet, quiet, 
reader. I still was a like little hammy, you know, and ostentatious. Right. But I became a wonderful kid. My my parents used to joke and say that they were saving um, scholarship money for my older brother, or you know, tuition money for my older brother, and bail money for me. <laughs> they said that from a, like when I was five. They're like, this kid's gonna end up in jail. He is nuts. And then I just, I guess I just switched or found an outlet. Um, and uh, but so when I was a kid, I was I was a pretty good kid. I was very easy. Um, my brother was, uh, you know, like teenager in Abilene, Texas, having come from California. And Abilene is a, a miserable place to be um, a weirdo in. You know, you are like where is it geographically in Texas? West Texas. So um, between Midland, Odessa, a uh, place of Friday Night Lights, that's yeah. the, and Dallas, like halfway in between. It's sort of it, it's technically West Texas, but it's basically right in the middle. You know, if you were to just sort of like east to west drop a pin, that's where Abilene would be. Okay. Um, so yeah, older brother was was weird and ostracized for it, and then you know took to the like fun weird teenager. Dr- like goth uh, um, weird. He was or? incredibly brilliant, uh, and is still incredibly brilliant. Um, and <laughs> he was as a child. He, he's he no longer. A, he's, he's now he's a dumb. lost his prodigy. <laughs> no, he's he's a brilliant guy, and um, like he was. He had learned C++ by the time he was, like, eight years old. I like don't even know of, what that is. It's a computer programming language. Okay. Like, he, yeah. he was taking trigonometry when he was, like, 10. Oh, he, had read, he had read the complete set of my mom's encyclopedias at four. He was, like, water skiing at two. Water skiing at two years old. Just, like, you know, f- like, with his feet. Not even on skis. Barefoot water skiing at two years old. So he was this physical and mental phenom. And incredibly hyper. And when he came to Abilene, I think it was like, you know. Came to Abilene from? From North California. My mom and dad met in Mexico. My mom was married to a guy named Scott. My dad was married uh, to a girl named Gretchen. And over the course of like, well, they swapped in Mexico. And then. Wait, uh, the the couple swapped? The couple swapped. Oh, my God. And and were like, oh. Uh, And over the course of like Like a year and a half. Like a hippie thing? Like. A free love, a semi hippie thing. I mean, this was yeah, this must have been what seventies or eighties. Semi free love hippie thing, yeah. But also just sort of maybe accidental, like the story. And I don't know if this is, I don't know how apocryphal this is. But my mom and dad told me the story of they were sitting at a table, or my mom was with Scott, her ex husband, and jokingly said to Scott, "That girl's your type." And he jokingly said to my mom that guy's your type and they were and my dad and his ex were just sitting at a table and you know apparently just sort of quietly sitting there and you know nursing their beers or whatever they all got together all kind of you know ah hit it off swapped cut to a year and a half later and they like make the full move and my mom and her ex-husband had had my older brother at the time and so it was like this big you know obviously incredibly tumultuous thing sure but both couples are still together that's the crazy thing so wow i know it's it's nuts that is, you know, they, there's no it, rules there in There are life. no rules, it's, Shit's man. weird. Yeah, shit's, you know, you, shit gets and weird. And when you meet the right person. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's no denying it. There's, <laughs> there's no, no denying, denying it. it. So your brother is your half-brother? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And older sister is my cousin. What's he doing now? Is he, is he, you know, working uh, in the... He lives in Texas. He was working for an oil company driving around explosives. Okay. Um, and uh, although I think he just got a job, a different job. But um, he's still... He still like operates in this sort of like um, it's like goodwill underworld. Hunting. Yeah, he he operates in this like underworld of the internet. Uh, that sounds like he's a drug dealer, um, but he operates in this underworld of the internet uh, with like independent games and stuff. And he still programs. And it's like I don't even I can't even 
um, like operate in that language of his. So I don't know how to ask him what he's doing, if right. that makes sense. And yeah, he, yeah. he doesn't easily volunteer information because he's sort of a shy guy now. Like he was super ostentatious as a kid. Now he's very shy. So our conversations are, are you know, generally like just broad catching up and, you know, occasionally like deep brotherly philosophical stuff. But I very rarely like have a full grasp of what he does with his time, which is fine. I'm sure it's vice versa. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. the art world is equally as insular and weird and languagey. And so who knows? But right. yeah, that's. We that's just that's assume it's interesting to everyone. Oh, yeah. We're like this is it. This is the next. <laughs> the minu- culture, you know? <laughs> the minutiae yeah. of like the writer's life is yeah. interesting to somebody who like. Not you at know, all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, um, but you know, you were talking earlier about um, the, the the permissiveness and the treating you like an adult from a young age. Um, the uh, the li- what did you, you you use a great phrase? It was like living in a storm of profanity. Yeah, <laughs> it was like yeah, it was, I see, was living in a storm. Of profanity. I have long argued when it comes to um, parenthood, like mm-hmm. my kid, mm-hmm. like she will be able to cuss from day one. Yeah. It's an, long, as, it's an advantage. It's a biological as, advantage. As too. long as she's not calling somebody a name. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Or using, like, hate speech. But if she can <laughs> – like, there's no such thing as a bad – I'm of the George Carlin school. Like, I, yes. There's no such thing as a bad word. Yes. I mean, come on. Let's – you know. Yeah. She's got to – you know, you have to pick your moments. And I think a lot of it, too, is reading your child and seeing if they can figure out when, yeah. when to say things and when to not say things. Yeah. Some kids can't control themselves. But – you know, one thing that strikes me about you, because you're, you're in your 20s still, mm-hmm. early 20s. Yeah, 23. Yeah, so you're, you seem a lot older than your age. You've got to, you have to have heard that from people. Yeah, all so, my life. All your life. Mm-hmm. So you're just, is this something that is um, traceable for you and your siblings, or is this something that you think is unique to you? I think it's unique to me. Um where do you think it comes from? Aside from oh, aside from being treated as more of an equal from a younger age and not being, you know, what? I don't know. Part of me wants to blame it on books and you know say like, oh, literature, that's the portal. Um, but then at the same time, you know, I a lot of I know I know some people uh, who have read a lot and they still, you know, I, I don't think anybody would call them older than their age. You know what I mean? There, there's like a, I don't know what it is. You know, and I don't want to pat myself on the back or anything. But I think I think. Maybe I was thinking in a domain that allowed me to chew up and spit out certain philosophical concepts early on as a child because I was given the permission to that other people don't have. You know what I mean? Like I could I could argue with my parents or or t- you know just have conversations with them about crazy deep intense shit as a as a child. And you know a lot of families they don't that that does not exist. Yeah. It's all surface. Um and I also had that sort of relationship with books. You know, I felt like I. And when, I when was did that to- start? When did that start? Um, like when did you really turn on uh, to literature? Oh, that was that was maybe around ten, ten or so. Uh, it started with fantasy books and choose your own adventures, and then it went to the the first like the two major books that cracked me open as a kid. Kid were. Uh, uh, a Confederacy of Dunces, which I remember reading in like maybe fourth or fifth grade and being like, what the fuck is this? Like it's talking about a guy. You read Confederacy mad. of Dunces in fifth grade? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's early. Yeah, that is very early. And, you know, I'm sure I, I got about, you know, 15% of it, if that. But but there's some good cussing in that book. Oh, yeah. And, and yeah. I mean, it's at the very core, it's about a large um, – ostentatious fat masturbating philosopher <laughs> i wonder constantly i just wrote about this um but i wonder constantly 
how that book got in the Abilene public school system library. Like, who let that in? And in in our in our school too, we had this system called accelerated reading. Have you heard of this? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like the point system. So you know, like books have uh, grade levels assigned to them, and if you read higher grade levels, that often equates to higher points. The tests are harder. You know, it's all computerized tests about like to test your comprehension. Um, but I was like a little egotistical bastard and super arrogant, and I had like a reading competition with this girl named Hillary. An unspoken reading competition, of course. She probably never thought this, but I was like, <laughs> fuck this girl. Um, and she was like the type of girl who wore horse sweaters and read all the Little House on the Prairie books, yeah. um, which were super thick and, a, and worth like 20 points a pop. And she would blow through them. And I was like, this fucking girl, man. <laughs> and whoever won each month uh, would get like a personal pizza party. Or, you know what I mean? Some awesome child thing that you're like, this is the Holy Grail. What do you mean a personal? Like, one, like, like a, a pizza, pizza for just you? Or or if if a certain class won, they got a pizza party among the school. Like the English class for being the best reading English class. Um, but I actually don't remember the details of the personal gifts. But I, <laughs> I assure you, they existed. Yeah. Um, and so I, I just naturally was like, well, fuck it. I'll read Dracula. I'll start Moby Dick. I remember I read half of my – not half, but I, I got up to the um, cytology chapter on Moby Dick when I was like 12 years old. And lo- I was loving it until the cytology, cytology chapter, and I was like, what is this bullshit yeah, about yeah, whales? Yeah. Who yeah, cares? Right. But I'm rereading it now, and I was like, okay, I get it. And now I, I sort of understand why things are there, um, or I feel like I do. Um, so, yeah, I, I think my early reading was driven by competition, of course. Uh and then, well, whatever works, right? What, yeah, whatever gets kids reading, man. I mean, shit, blackmail them. I don't know. Um, Were your parents feeding you books? They would buy whatever. You know, like I, I was a kid who would bring home the little, um, you know, Scholastic Book Fair catalog with like half the catalog checkmarked, and my mom would be like, "All right, yep," yep. and I'd get them and read them or not. Uh, but. I was pretty spoiled as a kid, like whatever. I, I don't think any of my requests were ridiculous, you know, and I don't think I was um, ungrateful. So I think that basically if I wanted a book, if I wanted a toy, if I wanted to like become obsessed with comic books and buy every damn toy and collect and organize them, I think my parents were just like, sure, let's let the freak do his thing. Right. Um, I can't, I cannot turn my daughter down when she wants to go to the bookstore. Do, I mean, no, it's, it's you, a good thing. How the hell do you do it? If you're going to spoil your kid. In, spoil them with books. Yes. If they want to read a book, it's for the God's most, sakes. It's the most benign, you know, art in general, the most benign thing in the world at worst and at best it's you know Super a little healthy. virus and healthy and transformative and blah 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 right well, yeah i mean like i worry too i mean i was talking to my wife about this last night i worry about the ipad culture and smartphones just the world that she's going to grow up in yeah um and then who was i was either talking to someone or i was reading something about how and i'm gonna have to check this but mm-hmm. i got someone was telling me or you know either in writing or in my ear that there are schools in Silicon Valley that uh, have no Wi-Fi. Oh, wait. Oh. And they're like, they're essentially like unplugged schools. And, and that's a thing. And the people who send their kids there are the people who are creating Jesus. the internet. See, that's crap to me. Like ethically. You know what I mean? Right. Like if, yeah. you, what, if, if what it's the hell? real. If it's real. I mean, you know. I, I believe it though, man. I believe it. But that is so fucked up. The only ethical rule as a maker of shit is that if you write something or make a website, you got to use it. 
That's that's the that's the only ethical thing. Use it personally. Right. So if other people are harmed by it, you're equally as harmed by it. How in the hell can these people go to sleep at night knowing they're like they're working in a world that promotes these things that they don't want their children to even encounter? Right. That's crap. well. It's like the executives at like you know Kentucky Fried Chicken or whatever. Yeah, not, they're not eating no, of there. Course. <laughs> of course. But that that's like that's it, man. If you yeah. enforce that rule in a draconian way, I think that things would get fixed fast. Right. You know. So I don't know. I just worry about. It, will the Scholastic catalog exist? exist? It'll exist on an iPad. Yeah. And people will be able to tap and just one-click <laughs> order it. You know? Kids will be ordering Oh, my God. Uh, who knows? Who it'll knows? be all right. Well, we may collapse before then anyway, so it'll be okay. I don't know. You know. You know. But, um, okay, so somewhat uh, prodigious, is that the word? Sure. I, I, am, I guess. Decision to get into acting. Uh-huh. To pursue that at mm-hmm. what fourteen years old? Yeah, I you know I started doing it when I was younger, like twelve. Um, Where? Abilene, a lot of regional theater. That's a sort of paradox of Abilene. Incredibly Baptist, uh, and yet. Were you raised with religion? None. none. My dad is hardcore atheist. My mom, I would say, is spiritual slash you know Northern California agnostic. But I mean, enable. I mean, enabling that must have been an anomaly. Like, yeah. Oh, totally. And did it affect your ability to socialize? Yes. Um, but you know what, I I. I don't know how, but I managed to float with kind of any social group that I thought I needed to float with. You did, but I'm just yes. like I, I. My folks are from the south, mm-hmm. and I know how embedded. Oh, it's deep, man! Like, it's everywhere. Pe- people who don't yep. have you know any experience with the south, like man, the religious culture in the south Nuts. is it. That is it. Yeah, Ab- Abilene. It is football and church and trucks. That's it. That's it. That's and it. so, if you're not a member of the church, people are going to know. Yes. And if, you know, I don't know if your dad was, uh, like, open with his atheism, but... Uh, you know what I mean? Like, he, he's a pretty honest guy. Uh, I'd, I'd say he's honest to a fault. Um, but he also has this weird cowboy authority about him where I feel like he could look uh, a deeply religious person in the face. And, I'm, in fact, I'm sure and, he has to his and, customers before. And unleash like, a string of expletives. Yeah, just, yeah, just been like, <laughs> fuck your God. <laughs> And you know what? I don't think that I don't think the customers would say shit. A because my dad, this is going away slightly as he gets older, and now he's sort of you know losing teeth. He's still a tiger, but he's he's more of a toothless tiger. But he was an incredibly like he's a he was a large guy. Like he's tall, he's mean, he just looks strong. Like he looks like he is not the guy you want to piss off. And, you know, often carrying wrenches and power tools. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? It's like he just had this, like, badass, uh, you know, like, marble, marble, what the hell? Yeah, yeah, How yeah. do you pronounce that brand Marlboro. name? Okay, there you go. Just, lose the L. Lose the L. Lose, lose Marlboro. The L. Yeah. He, he had that, that, like, Marlboro man persona to the max. Wow. Um, and so I, I don't know if he ever got into it with customers. I, I think ultimately he's he is that, but he's also incredibly nice, like, and doesn't want to, you know... He well, doesn't and, want to me- mess with people or deeply unseat them from their religious faiths. Well, it's like, who, yeah, who wants to have that debate? But it's, it should also be said that, like, to paint with too broad of a brush in that part of the country would be unfair as well. Because, Correct. you know, uh, sprinkled amid all of the piety, there are plenty of people down there who don't necessarily toe that line. Yeah, right? exactly. You and know? that's the thing. Like, okay, so Abilene, coming back to how I got into acting, there are seven regional theaters and I discovered, along with my mom, like because I would I would audition for these plays and get get started doing all of these community theater plays. You know, there were the big the big novelty gay people in Abilene who were operating in their small but tight 
social group. <laughs> extremely. Extremely <laughs> tight, you know. Uh, You'd have to this band was, together. This was not far away from Laramie, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, and this was like, hey, we're in the South. Um, and But this was this incredibly vibrant group of people who took me on and accepted me as like, yeah, this kid's kind of a freak, but bring them on. This is, we're a bunch of freaks, so let's just, you know, make things together and, and fart off. Um, and so in Abilene, Texas, I was able to, you know, at a, a an after party for a production of Midsummer's Night Dream that we did in the round as if it was a vaudeville show from the 20s. Uh, at the after party of this show, um, you know, I I was maybe 12 years old and got a lap dance from two lesbians. And it was wonderful, <laughs> you know. So I was I God saw the light. You. I was like, oh wow, <laughs> theater acting. This is what gets me where I want to be. This is the, this is where the lesbians. The, yeah, are. this is where the le- go where the lesbians were. They hot are. lesbians? Like was yes, it, oh and they God. were too. I was like, I couldn't believe it, man. Yeah. I, I am shocked that my penis didn't detach from my body and <laughs> sail through the heavens, you know, just like as a rocket ship. <laughs> In fact, it may have. It I may don't know. Have, its right. soul may still be gone. <laughs> right. um, but yeah, that was that was it. So I did tons of community theater, then started working in Dallas, doing a bunch of like kitty modeling for like J.C. Penney's and Dillard's. Anything creepy? Lot. No, you know, I'm sure I wore underpants at some point, jumped up and down on a bed, but not, <laughs> I was never fondled. Okay. Cool. Um, and then a bunch of stuff in New York. Um, Auditions, primarily. I didn't really book any work in New York, but and so your parents, or actually, it was New York first and Dallas. And you were and you were driving this ship. It wasn't like you're, yes, you're, no, no, no. You're, I, not, I, you're not living out no, like it the was dream not the of stage a mom fantasy. None of that. No, it was uh, it was like, do you do you want to do this? Okay, you know. And it was always me being like, hey, can we do this? Hey, can we do this? Yeah, this feels right. Were, um, you, were you were you finding in your reading? Um, trajectory like mentors essentially were you looking at actors that you oh. admired and being like they did this and i want to do this too or was it less constant was it less uh I think construct- it was less constructed like okay. I, I think it was sort of stumbling into it and i also had this like and maybe this fed into the you know older than your years thing because i had the sort of uh confidence that teenagers have but i had it at like 10 years old so you know, it was like this reverse. It was like parallax, parallax universe of like this quality that I had out of time that made me seem older, maybe. But like, I just had this blind faith that like, yep, I'm gonna work. Like, yeah, put me in LA, I'll work. Yes, I will book work. I'll find it because I'm good. And that faith with age obviously erodes or just falls out of your fingers like, you know, dune sand. My, I, mine was never there to begin with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some people never have it, um, but. Uh, but yeah, that just that just happened, and sure enough, like you know, maybe I knew something uh, internally about how fate was going to play out for me. Uh, but it it did kind of prove to be true. I I never went more than you know like six months without working at, for years and years and years. Well, but okay, here's the thing. I mean, I know there are a lot of kids who try to do this. Stuff. Yeah, there are a lot, but like yes, relative to the pool of adults, it's a smaller number. Absolutely. So when some kid has the gumption. It's rare. It's rare. And when some kid has intelligence to go along with it and like the chutzpah. And, sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Like, maybe. Like like whenever I think of prodigies mm-hmm. and whenever I think of somebody who's had success at a young age, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's the temptation uh, or there used to be the temptation to think, oh, well, they just are blessed with some gift. They yeah. have some sort of special the divine, power. Yeah, that's, that's not true. It's, it's it, luck well, and being in the right place. It's, right? it's that. It's that. But I, I think if there's any real special talent it's just that self-awareness and that willingness to jump at an early age 
you know, they just yeah. get started earlier. So oh, absolutely. A musical yeah. pro- if there's a musical prodigy, you know, you read about them and like, oh my God, they had like a, you know, they, their album uh, hit, the, you know, top the charts when they were 19. But it's like, yeah, and they started performing exactly. when they were six. And not only that, they were operating in an environment that probably, if it didn't drive them towards that, it certainly never said no. You know what I mean? Yeah. It all it takes is one no from a parent, and you're fucked. Or or and from a or from a significant adult. Yeah, and I know. never and I never got it. Yeah, I mean, I would get no's in the form of no, you didn't book this work. But I, as a kid, I was always like, "Fuck you, you're lost." Next, <laughs> you know what I mean? But you, probably a good probably a good attitude. I don't know. I mean, it, it worked for me then. It certainly yeah. did. So um, the move to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're flying to New York to do commercials. Is that what I, it was? Well, you know what? I I got a one of those small town actor model searches rolled through town in Abilene. I qualified, quote unquote. I.e., my mom had to pay like probably six hundred bucks to some dude in a brown paper bag. But we went to this one in Dallas, and I walked a little kitty runway, and I talked my little kitty talk to a bunch of agents who were interested, and I just was talking about Pokemon and just like losing my shit and being like, Pokemon's the greatest thing on earth. <laughs> and an agent was like, You can sell Cheerios. And so I got I they said, do you want to come to New York for a few months? We'll sign you. And so, you know, I was like, I do, mom. Yes. Can we make this happen? And so we spent a few months in New York auditioning. And and then from New York, my talent agent in New York set me up with an agent in Dallas, Dallas to Los Angeles. So that that was sort of the path. So it was commercials. Mm -hmm. It was modeling. And then you're in Los Angeles Mm -hmm. and then you book. A TV show? I booked, yeah. Um, the first year I came out, I'm on the burp, excuse me. Okay. Uh, the first year I came out, uh, no bad taste there. This is all a good story. I don't know why that burp manifested. Um, I didn't book a thing. Uh, and we were living in the Oakwood apartment complex, which is notorious. Uh, Where's that? In Burbank oh, okay. on Barham Boulevard. Yeah. It is just notoriously this giant complex that you never have to leave. It's totally self-contained. There's a grocery store, tennis courts, pools, hot tubs that are just filled with dead old sex from teenagers' <laughs> past. And um, and it's just full of stage moms and, and kids and musicians. And, like, any, everybody's just trying to make it. And that's, like, that's where you get shoved into first. It's like a holding pen. It is a holding pen. And it's fucked up, man. It. it at the same time, you can navigate it in a smart way. Who else has lived there? Like, is there lore? Dude, there's tons of lore. Like um, Lindsay Lohan. Kurt Cobain and... lived there for a while. Okay. Tons. Uh, basically, any child actor ever in the past 20 years has lived there. Um, Rick James died there in an apartment at no Oakwood. Um, but yeah, man, if you do, there are articles about Oakwood. You know, it's that kind of thing. Right. It does have a mythos. Um, it's calling for a documentary, I feel like. It, oh, my God, man. <laughs> it would sweep Sundance. It yeah. really would. But so, you know, I sort of was learning what that was being a kid in this place where I could run around and find other kids and constantly turn down an offer to smoke pot at like 13 or 14 or whatever. (laughs) You did turn it down. I did turn it down. I didn't I didn't smoke pot the first time until I was 18 years old. I think that I had an attitude towards drugs, not alcohol, but an attitude towards drugs from seeing my older brother get like, you know, run through the ringer of drugs. I just was like, no, like, no, like, don't like, do ad- that. like addicted and all that kind of stuff. Uh, no, no, no. It never was like a, a addicted needed to go to rehab thing. But he, you know, it just like I saw my mom. I vividly remember him like being either so hungover or fucked up from snorting Ritalin and like on a Ritalin hangover. Or Lord knows what he did. He experimented with everything. I don't. I th- think he never mainlined 
uh, because he was afraid of needles. So that, I think that kept him away that's from a line. Like, that's a line for a lot of people. That's a line, and I'm glad it's it was. It's a good line. <laughs> it's a good line. You should really be thoughtful when thinking about it. Um, but I remember him, like, you know, literally crawling down the stairs for school one morning and my mom, like, kicking his ass. You know, not, not, this isn't a euphemism, like, just hammering him with her foot, like, get your fucking ass up and go to school. So that, I just sort of had this, this image of, you know, my brother as this, this thing that it was like, oh, damn, drugs can be a little intense and they're not for me. I always felt, and I still feel this way, I've never done hallucinogens because I'm, I'm afraid that, well, A, I have the anxiety about them, so I know that that will inform my trip because yeah. I don't think I could convince myself to dispel that anxiety because I'm <laughs> neurotic. And B, I just have this gut feeling that, like, I will go a place and I will not be able to come back in a deep way. <laughs> my wife is like that. Yeah, I just – and I, you know what? And it's fine. There are other people who can handle it. Some of my closest friends, uh, you know, have – the guy who married Aviva and I, uh, this guy named Steve Silberman. He was on mushrooms during the service. <laughs> <laughs> he's done acid like hundreds of times, yeah. hundreds. And he's a, you know, a wonderful guy. There's, it means nothing to me. Hard drugs have no connotation at all to me ethically or, you know what I mean? It's all just right. based on the user. But I saw my brother kind of um, struggle with him. So I, I, I was – it was easy for me to be like, nope, I'm going to be the kid that works. You're going to be the kid who gets fucked up by the time you're 14 and just burns out. Well, but it's interesting that you say that because so often, you know, the, I think the common the common uh, thought is that if you have an older sibling who's doing this stuff, then, you know, he or she is sort of leading you down that path. But it, it, the opposite can be true. Absolutely. You can see the hangover yep. and be like, what the fuck yeah, is you this? You can see the, the, the quote unquote bad example. I think I did that to my little sister. A little really? Because I was the kid in our yeah. family who was probably the most experimental. Were you first child? Middle. Okay, middle. Um, but it was just, and my older sister didn't really do much. She just falls asleep. I remember <laughs> like, fall asleep. like the one time we smoked pot together, she fell asleep on the hood of a car. <laughs> that sounds nice though. <laughs> yeah. you know? That's like a Wayne's World. My thing, friends right? and I were all just like, what's, you know, yeah, my friends well, were like, oh what's my wrong with your sister? She's <laughs> like, like, she's tired. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but, you know, that's interesting. I think some people just aren't wired for it. You yeah, know? And, I, and to this day, like, pot, no. Like, I don't – I've never reacted in a wonderful, positive way. I smoked once, and I laughed and watched a movie and just got hungry. Um, but the first time I smoked, I drank the ash water from a bong. <laughs> I um, played NFL Blitz, the arcade version with two buttons uh, and a joystick, and I kept forgetting which button was which. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. one of two. It, it makes like, you no. stupid. Oh, but in uh, but not not just stupid, like catastrophically stupid. Right. Like if you you know what I mean. And I'm always either catastrophically stupid or disgustingly analytical or some combination of the two. I'm helpless and it doesn't feel that good. So like I, I've smoked maybe three times and I'm like, nope, not, it's just not, it doesn't click with my head, my pharmacology, they don't match. Uh, and then I stopped drinking since I got sick. So I'm like, I am a clean living man. Dude. Damn, carbohydrates though are a drug. Yeah. They are. They're a drug of human means. And I abuse them. I was going to say occasionally. He ate a loaf of bread before. Yeah, we came I do. I just scarfed it down <laughs> in my car like a garbage person. Um, okay, so living at the Oakwood Apartments, going out on auditions, you have representation. Yes. What you're 15 years old, whatever. Yeah, mm -hmm. 14, and, uh, and and then I finally book a show. Okay, and you booked which show? What's the show? It was called Don't Ask. It was a pilot for Fox. Okay, Alan Ruck. Uh, played my dad, Alan Ruck, played Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which was my favorite movie. And still, it probably is my favorite movie of all time. What was he like? 
He was wonderful. Was he? He was the. He was just wonderful, and it's he an, still is. I've run into him a few times. He's, he's like just an a great icon- guy. iconic performance as Cameron. Oh my god! He'll never shake it. I don't know if he wants. I know, to. I know. Which is a, a bummer, a bit of a bummer. But you know what? He. I remember talking his ear off about it. He, was, he did the gracious, like I will talk to you as long as you want to talk about Ferris Bueller. <laughs> um, but it's a great movie. And uh, Kristen. Oh man, I'm going to forget her name, which is terrible. Uh, the woman who played the the mom on third rock from the sun okay uh and she played my mom and uh it was great it it was sort of forward though and apparently it went down to rupert murdoch apparently it was such a tumultuous pilot you know like war clash of the sides these people want to pick it up these people didn't and apparently it went to the boss 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 rupert murdoch who said no fucking way for one of two reasons. And again, I don't know if these are apocryphal, but this is what I heard. Um, one, because the plot of the show was about, I, I'm the, like the lead. It's sort of a Malcolm, Malcolm in the middle esque thing. And I'm trying to keep my family together after my dad comes out to my mom. And this oh. was in like 2004 oh, okay. comes out and he's like, I'm gay. I'm dating my therapist and everybody's going nuts. It was written by this a brilliant playwright, a guy named Nikki Silver. Um, who's a wonderful playwright and nice guy lives in New York. And, um, and apparently, so Rupert Murdoch, a might've said no way because he's a bigot, maybe. Right. Um, and B, uh, Sandy Grushow was the producer of this pilot. He had formerly been president of Fox TV in the, I think the X-Files years, and him and Rupert apparently did not get along about programming. So. Isn't it strange? I mean, how the fuck do these decisions get made? Yeah. The who thing knows? gets shot, it gets picked, and then you go into some room and some guys in suits who are deciding what goes yeah. on the air. Oh, yeah. I mean, there. you know, it is it is a very odd, ritualistic, arbitrary decision. And, you know, I, you hear about people trying to use, like, actual data to back up their decisions, but things test well that bomb and things test horribly that you know become bestseller so there's no logic there's none i just wish i wish hollywood finally cycles back to the days in which uh you know people who run studios also love movies which i think is right and tv which i don't think is the case in many instances i know i'm wrong in a lot of the cases but uh i just wish more people uh, worked in the business that that loved movies and or have experience in actually producing them. That would be kind of cool. Well, I think those day, I think that day is coming. It is coming because right. of yes. digital distribution yep. and people are getting blank checks and just and saying we trust you. We trust you, yeah. and it's like that's what if, you know. If I had endless money, you know, you have to pick wisely. Yeah, you can't give endless money to just anybody. But I mean, right. you know, if you can go out and find talent and you have that ability, like eventually, I could see you know, some sort of organization forming where it's like, we have the, it's kind of like HBO. Sure. You know, we have the talent come here. You can watch it on, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. There, I think you're right. I think there will be a Netflix esque era thing that is comprised of just a bunch of, you know, look, if the agencies were smart, they'd do it. You know, if, if CAA, well, and they are, but, and I don't know legalistically if this is that, if this is that possible, but you know what I mean? They, they have such uh, giant repositories of talent. Of talent. Why don't they just go? Okay, CA channel now. Yeah. And and our artists exclusively do exclusive licenses with our brand, and that's it. Right. If you want to see Soderbergh movies, you watch it here. Otherwise, you're fucked. Right. But I don't. You know, I don't know if they. If they, I don't even know if that's something they're interested in though, because they are so leveraged with corporate clients for advertising and everything, like you know, Coke and sports people. So they they. 
I don't know if they want to do that. I don't know if those organizations want to be that insular. Well, know. it's you know the change is coming. The change yes. that came to music is come to publishing, is coming to TV and film, and you know it's just it's just you know I don't know when we're all going to be able to look back comfortably and say like that's what happened. I don't. Yeah, it feels like, we're, it feels like we're in the midst of mm-hmm. like kind of ceaseless change yeah. right now, and nobody I, quite knows exactly what shape it is. Yeah, you know? exactly. I don't, and I don't know if we will live to see like a paradigm shift. You know, well, you know what I mean. That sort of like, okay, it was this, and then this happened, and now it's this irrevocably. Like, I don't know. I don't know if we'll see it. Do it well. I mean, it's hard to predict. 15 yeah. Years how do you? Now. How in the hell do you know? You, we it may have happened twenty years ago. Well, I mean, it's like, and it's like. Uh, I mean, yeah, the thing, technology changes so rapidly. Like I was talking to my wife about uh, our daughter and I was like, you know, when she's 16, there's a very good chance that we won't even have to think about her driver's license and all that kind of stuff because she's going to be in like a Google car. <laughs> Perhaps. Driverless cars yeah. like are not that far yeah. off. You know, it can be a totally different world. There'll be, yeah. a, there'll be a movie theater in your car, you know, like yeah, Jesus. you'll watch, you'll watch yeah. movies Lay on your back way to work. And, uh, yeah. As your, as your like coma body, <laughs> yeah. drug, you know, drug to wherever you're employed, you know. eating your Soma and your Soylent Green. What's that uh, Pixar movie with the, everyone, yeah, all the everyone, fat people, yeah. all the like incredibly obese people I love that, that cannot movie. stand on their own two feet. What is it? Uh, Wally. That was a great movie. Um, okay, so just let's finish up with like, uh, or at least get to some sort of uh, <laughs> terminus with regard to the acting, because I want to get into literature yeah. too. Um, but you know, it, the, it's a weird pairing. You know, your yeah. career as an actor and the success that you've had, coupled with like this intense um, literary interest, mm-hmm. um, not not common. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I think there are actors out there that read and and write and. You know, you get people like Spalding Gray or, hey, Johnny Depp just started a publishing company. You know, it, I don't think the arts are that, like, uh, clicky domain-wise, but I think that maybe actors who pub- uh, who who pursue both with a, if not equal intensity, a pretty closely, you know, equivalent int- intensity, I think that's rare. Yeah. Maybe. I feel like it's rare. I don't, you know, I rarely meet other actors who you know work often that are like yeah i also uh, love weird literature yeah it's, <laughs> uh, maybe never has happened yeah to well, me. well and what and so then you got you this pilot didn't go rupert murdoch uh, put the kibosh on it and then it's reportedly after that was there were there other like yeah i booked another pilot the next year or the lead in the uh not the lead but a lead a regular role in the another pilot for abc uh, that didn't get picked up. I did another pilot for ABC Family. That didn't get picked up. I did another pilot for Fox. That didn't get picked up. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I then finally, it. and then it and was... And then finally, I, and meanwhile, you know, I was doing little stuff and commercials and, you know, uh, a bunch of student films. And and then I, I don't know, I forget the order, but I, I booked like a guest star role in a TV show. And then I booked... Which this, show? Uh, Eli Stone. It was on ABC for a while. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> and then I think I booked secret life after that and, and i booked a movie that i met my wife on in louisiana um called well you know what it, it shall remain nameless really yeah Why? well uh was it a porn no <laughs> basically <laughs> right. it was basically porn uh it still hasn't seen the light of day don't know if it ever will um but what i will say about it is i met my wife on it a oh, yeah. best thing in the world where did they film in louisiana uh, hammond louisiana yeah, yeah. outside of new orleans or? outside of new orleans um and so we made trips to new orleans which was nice hammond itself is a suck hole uh <laughs> its people are are good but yeah. uh the actual place is just miserable um but i came back from that and 
I think pretty soon thereafter booked Secret Life and did that. Secret Life of the American Teenager. That's the one. Okay. So talk to me about uh, having these literary ambitions Mm -hmm. and inklings that would seem to be, from the outside looking in, at odds with being on a television show called The Secret Life of the American Teenager. Because, you know, literary people can sometimes be self-serious absolutely oh no need to pull punches you no. can say like hey you were on a teeny show and why are you publishing this weird serious letter did you have any kind of internal conflict about that no but i also again maybe this is a holdover from my weird youth confidence in my like ultra youth is that uh ultra youth that sounds vaguely third reichish <laughs> i'm gonna strike that uh strike that um but maybe it was just a holdover from that confidence of just being like well, you know, sure, this hasn't happened in the past. Like some asshole on Dawson's Creek hasn't also been like, I love, you know, Beckett and I'm going to publish stuff like that. But okay, I'll just do it and I'll be the first to do that. And will it, you know, will people take me seriously? I'll fucking make them, you know? Like I I, I take it seriously and I think I'm rel- – most of the time I think I'm not self-delusional. And now I have luckily someone that I live with 24-7 to check me if I get self-delusional, but, um, I just thought, no, like I'll, I'll do it. Like, and I'll do it well enough, you know, I'll make people take me seriously. Um, and so, yeah, they are disparate things, but at the same time, I find wonderful connections. Like I'll find fans from my show who then buy a Sator press book and email me and become like huge, you know what I mean? So there, there is crossover. It's rare, but it exists, and, and I'd like to continue to mine it. Well, yeah. sure, yeah, I and mean, like, and like, let's you know, the other the other side of it too is that um, you're 23, yeah, and you're you're playing a teenager on this show, mm-hmm. and as you get older, and as your um, opportunities expand in the business, it's not like you're always going to be doing the teenage. I mean, exactly, you could be doing art films that would seem like a like would seem to have a more direct line to the literary yeah. pursuit or whatever, you know? but. Uh, it's nice too because you know you have uh, you know a way to subsidize your literary pursuits. That's and- it. I mean, that's why I tell people. I remember actually reading um, an interview with Michelle Williams, I think, and she was on. Was she on Dawson's yeah. Creek? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was talking about how she felt like she was uh, like a. a mob member and that she was like smuggling money like dawson's creek was like the pizza shop wink wink nudge nudge that was like washing her cash that she would then use to go do weird artsy things right i remember being like yeah so i i i say that it's sort of equivalent like i felt that i was taking disney's money and like using a portion of it to like summon up the dark arts you know (laughs) something just totally antithetical to well i heard that's like i remember like reading an interview with moby the musician Mm -hmm. and he was talking about licensing his music for commercials Mm -hmm. and he's like yeah and you know i take their i take these you know car companies money and then i give like a chunk of it to like environmental concerns you know i mean i think that ultimately and if this is an honest way or not who knows history will tell um uh, and you know, so it's up to somebody or some committee to decide once I'm dead. But I feel like it makes a little sense to tr- to to convince yourself that that's ethical if you work in the business, because if you don't convince yourself that that's ethical, that it's not ethical to you know uh, work on a show or help make a thing that sells Colgate or sells you know BP oil or whatever in the fuck, um, you'll go crazy and you could might kill yourself. Um, which isn't a good thing uh, if you want to continue to work or live uh, in Los Angeles. And it's a great city, great food, good tacos. So try not to kill yourself. Um, but 
So yeah, you just have to convince yourself. You have to pull the wool over your eyes. Some days it feels like it really is pulling the wool over your eyes. Some days it feels like, no, this is a this is a decent enough way. I mean, look, we all pay the piper somehow, you know. You pay taxes. Right. So uh, you're ultimately supporting an institution that you probably don't want to support. Um, and, you know, maybe in some way, yeah, but in it's some like way, but you're an author and your your book is made of a forest. I mean, yeah, you know, no, what I'm exactly. saying? it's we, like you're never we, clean. humans are rapacious, ecological, you know, disasters. Destro- we're destroyers. <laughs> we are destroyers. <laughs> right. Um, and so but it's a balancing act because yes. I think there's something to the idea that you have to be um, whatever your volition is, like whatever your pursuit is, you should think about how it impacts other people in the environment absolutely you know but like I mean, you can't God. be but you're never going to get it perfect you can't be you can't be that pure i mean you know there are people like ed begley jr who you hear about like literally bicycling in the morning to toast his toast and part of me is like that guy's a fucking bomb that is absolutely what we should do <laughs> does he and really do that? he does well apparently he does man apparently he bicycles for most of his energy at home like his wi-fi he's on that bike boom 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 all day wow so and that's fucking admirable um people who live their ideals or whatever you yes know? and i we all try we all flirt with it and we all in some cases do uh i can't or I have found myself unable to commit that deeply to my uh, ethical, like platonic ethical forms in the clouds. And I don't know if I'll get better at it or get worse. Um, I hope I get better. Well, you know, yeah, you try your best. I feel like um, this is a, like I have I have all these kind of like it's like re- recurring themes or recurring conversations in my we life. We share them. Yeah, but it's like it's like. Looking at the world, and I'm obviously no expert, but looking at the world from my limited vantage point and seeing all the things that um, are going wrong, you know, environmentally, mm-hmm. politically, blah, 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 um, poverty, just those big kind of huge things where you're like, what the fuck do we do about mm-hmm. this? It seems to me that if we were sincere about trying to address these things, we might be bicycling for our Wi-Fi. Yeah, and absolutely. The way it that would be we, that deep. Yeah, like the way that we live, mm-hmm. what it would look like would be radically different. different. And that's what I think people would go, wait a minute, but that's, yeah. that's not normal. And, that's, and that to me, you know, you read, read something like The Collapse of Complex Societies by Joseph Tainter, that book I harped on you uh, when we had lunch not long ago about reading. And the empirical picture that it paints is that for the first time in history, we are aware at a fundamental level on a real factual data level of the reality of human societies and how they just do the same shit over and over and over again, which is grow beyond their means, their, you know, the, the, the decline of their whatever it was, the rate of marginal return just plummets, and their investments start losing their efficiency, and then they just collapse radically. And for the first time in history, he was saying, like, we have – we know that this will happen. Can we make a conscious – and not like a spiritual personal thing. Like, that's always bunk to me. But can we as a society either structurally blackmail ourselves or encourage – you know, encourage behavior that is radically less um, ecologically intense than what we're accustomed to and scale back in time? I don't the, – the more I think about it. And I constantly am thinking about this shit. Uh, the less I think that it's that that will be the case, I, I think that no. But you know what? I also think that it's fine. 
the biosphere is going to be fine. Just like that George Carlin yeah, sketch. The Earth is going to be fine. We're <laughs> fucked. fucked. <laughs> and, you know, and we're fucking over a lot of different species. That's an unfortunate right. thing. Right. And we're fucking over the Earth's capacity for life for a, a time that is exponentially, you know, skewed. And that sucks. But um, so I don't think we'll be able to consciously as a species scale back. And you know why? It's because it's speculative. It's yes. like we're, 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 we're asking ourselves or like, you know, we're asking people. If a voice boomed from the heavens and said it, I think people would do it. Right. But there will never be a voice. It's like it's like this heaven. hasn't happened yet. Yep. But if we don't radically alter the way we live now. <laughs> 25 years from now people are yeah. like fuck that i'm yeah, just trying to get exactly. to work whatever man i, I like yeah, my truck i, yeah. I live in abilene and or i gotta I, eat yeah whatever i gotta fucking eat right well i hope we're wrong <laughs> i do too i mean for our sake for for your child's sake you yes know? and that's a fucked thing to me is like and i constantly think about it culturally i'm like there's too much art you know there's too much of everything so maybe maybe artists should just root and a part of me still believes that part of me thinks that i get overwhelmed guys like you and me we just got the shit stick and the and the grand lottery of fate and being white dudes now. White dudes now make too much art. They have for quite some time. We should probably, as a group, a collective group, just chill out. Let other people make art for a while. But we won't because we're assholes. Right. Um, but And so part of me thinks like, oh, God, culture. We really got to be careful with people's attention. Ultimately, is that going to be the big linchpin for society? No. It's probably going to be deeper structural stuff like – you know, transportation and food and all food. of that, but like, and political systems and war. But, um, but so I'm, I'm trying to scale back my like feeling of righteous anger at myself as someone who compulsively makes art, um, and you know, whatever, like waste production and waste ecological capacities to just make this little flitty did, fruitful did you read luxurious the, uh, thing. Did you read the Steven Soderbergh State of Cinema speech? I did. Like, and I love that he began with that and then I got frustrated that he just blew by it. Yeah. Because you know what I mean? It started out as that speech started out as this feint towards this idea of like, wait, is film worth it right now? In a in a historical perspective, is film worth the consumption the consumption and then he goes like well here's what's wrong with the art it's that fucking thing and and this is i talk i just wrote about this i think maybe if i'm not writing about it i'm going insane and, and looping it in my head 24 7 but i've talked to so many people about this artists that i love respect admire you know good people smart no bullshit and i always ask them i'm like do you think it is ecologically unethical right now to make art as you and it always terrifies i've never once posed that question to someone probably beyond you honestly in prior conversations that didn't totally balk and be like well you know fuck it if you can't do something then you i mean that's ridiculous you know what i mean right nobody's seriously gone like well could it could be you know and look it goes back to that thing of like silence like if someone voluntarily says nope uh, you know, if I have this talent, whatever, I am going to be ascetic. I'm going to manage my compulsions. And for the sake of people's attention and whatever, and for the sake of the trees that make the books, I'm going to just chill out and not make anything. That, to me, I would respect that immensely. It's a deep decision that someone makes to alter their behavior and consideration of other people's minds. Right. But am I brave enough to do it? No. Well, and yeah, I mean, it's like, there are worse ways. I'm to... bringing it the fuck down, Brad. <laughs> no, but like, it's, you know, it's a valid question. I just think 
in the grand scheme of things. Yes, there are, that, there that's the thing. Worse art is to... art is benign, it, and it again, it is beautifully benign. Like I would much rather waste somebody's attention than I'd waste their health by being a doctor that you know creates some iatrogenic disaster for a patient and prescribes them medication that they didn't need that kills them or puts them in terrible shape. I'd rather waste someone's attention than waste somebody's life by being a politician and creating legislature that creates some fucking crazy war. You know what I mean? And right. I'd rather waste their attention than waste their money by selling them something directly that I know for a fact they don't need now and will never need in the future. That is it or good for the them past. anyway. So know. art is the most benign cultural re you know, receptacle that we have to throw all of our gross, excess, <laughs> luxurious energy being this sort of pretty industrialized, like, leisure, well, although that's going away, the leisure's disappearing, um, but I, I, so in other words, I, I think that art is the thing to preach now, you know, or, or, you know, waste somebody's, like, ideological energy by, like, misdirecting them with skewed readings of certain ancient literature and saying, like, oh, this religion means you should do this terrible thing to people <laughs> right. and ignore these people and call them subhuman. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I think art's the – it's the only fucking option that I feel is, like, even viable as a thinking human that wants to do something with your excess energy. Well, what's energy? the Nietzsche? It's, like, the only – it's the proper metaphysical response to life. Exactly. You know, Bingo. so – um, so Sator Press, mm -hmm. uh, Solip, mm -hmm. you know, like talk about getting into books concurrently with, yeah. uh, you know, doing the acting. I found, and I, I I'm going to say this for the 8,000th time. I think I wrote about this recently. Why have I been writing so much about myself? It's <laughs> disgusting. I'm reading too much Montaigne, I think. Um, <laughs> he's rubbing off on me. Uh, but I found This Stranger, the book The Stranger, in an airport bookstore. Read it on. Read half of it on the plane. Went home. Got in bed. Read the other half. Uh, Googled existentialism, which I think is the modern enlightenment. You know, that's that's what happens now. We Google existentialism, <laughs> um, and Ooh. found an essay by Tao Lin, and started following his blog. Read his book, fell in love. Uh, started commenting on his blog. Found Blake Butler's blog, and then just got like sucked into this world of of online literature, which then. You know, my commitment to it just grew and grew. It, my commitment grew concurrently with my financial, you know, windfall. So I was like, I have this money. I can I can publish other people's work. Yeah. I'll, why the hell not do that? Well, and, you know, you talk about Blake and Tao and you talk about uh, the Internet and that, that, that particular or this particular moment in history and in literary history specifically mm – -hmm. You know, you think in the past about, like, the Beats all going to Columbia together, meeting in New York City sure. and sitting at those diners until yeah. 5 in the morning talking Bullshit. about books. You know, like, Blake and Tao and you and the people who are online in that community and continue to be, these are the these are the nerds. Yeah. And they you find each other. Yeah, absolutely. And it happened online. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's – I think that's accurate. Absolutely. And I think it continues to be that way. So, I mean – you know, I think some of, there, there's some geographical proximity for small like uh, clusters of these people, and they hang out and mm -hmm. they do stuff together and have readings or whatever. But you know, a lot of people are living in disparate locations, yeah. and they're meeting online and they're reading each other's work online, and that's, that's how all, it's, that's how it starts. That's how it's happening. And ultimately, you know, there, there's a, a writer and a, a artist I like, a guy named Austin Cleon, who wrote a book called Steal Like an Artist. That's one of those sort of uh, it's like a self help book for for you know make art. In other words, I read it when I was like, oh, God, how do I find motive? You know, I just was having a little crisis of like, oh, 
art. I don't want to make it. I don't think it's worth <laughs> it. I read this book and it's great. It's all practical, no bullshit. Austin's a, a really good writer um, and a talented artist. And he says like in the books, like, yeah, geography, not very important anymore to start at least. You always want to meet people in person, clearly. Right. But to start, you don't need it anymore. You just do good work and share it with people. That's one of the little maxims on the book. Just, you know, do good work and share it with people. And you can do that with the Internet now. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the method by which these little groups form will never change, no matter the technology. But uh, but it certainly helped. I mean, I felt very lucky because I was in Los Angeles, and I, I didn't know that there was a literary scene at all in Los Angeles. And I still am only, I feel like, barely towing into it and i'm like oh this it's a little slippery but it's, it's a little there. Sli- and i'm at the same time i'm towing into it and, and a lot of times i'm like i don't want to i'd rather sit in my house and be a hermit <laughs> um i don't want to be social right um but but yeah so it allowed me to to meet these guys living in new york and georgia and start making things with them which is great well well um this has gone fast it's been fun talking with you my pleasure and congrats on all the success uh i'm a little bit Angry with you for only being 23 and having done all of this. I love inspiring (laughs) anger. And before we leave, I'll say, because my publisher, Gian, will uh, chastise me if I don't say that my book, my first book, is coming out on the 14th of May. Apparently, it's already shipping. It's on Amazon. It's called Solip. That's that. There you go. Well, thanks so much, Ken. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, you guys. There you go. That is Ken Bauman. Go get his novel. It's called Solip, and it's available now from Tyrant Books. You can find him online at KenBauman.com. He's on the Twitter, at Ken Bauman, and he's on the Facebook as well. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com, and uh, be sure to get the app, the official Other People app. It's free, and it's available for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It is the best way to listen to this program the easiest and most elegant way, and uh, it doesn't cost anything. So go get the app. Uh, otherwise, yeah, you know, my uh, my creative conundrum, my literary conundrum. Uh, what can I tell you? I'm working it out. I'm working it out. And uh, in truth, you know, this has been going on for years. It's been brewing for a long time, this quandary. And uh, I'll figure it out. I have to. It's like an itch that I have to scratch, but it's one of those itches that's on a part of my back that I can't quite reach or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Please remember that uh, V.S. Pritchett called George Orwell, quote, the wintry conscience of a generation, and that Cyril Connolly once said, quote, literature is the art of writing something that will be read twice, end quote. Uh, That's it for now, folks. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks to Ken Bauman. Go get his new book. I will be back again on Sunday with another episode, another author, another conversation. In the meantime, uh, read something. Read something that will make you feel larger, if you know what I'm saying. Go to a bookstore and stay there for at least two hours. Maybe longer. Stay there for four hours. What would happen if you did that? Uh, or perhaps visit your local library. Do that. Uh, drink an entire pot of coffee and then go do that and see what happens. Or uh, actually, just an espresso. Don't drink an entire pot of coffee. If you drink an entire pot of coffee, uh, I fear that something strange could happen gastrointestinally at the bookstore or at the library, which could prove to be a fatal distraction. <laughs>